change, I'm sure. Uh, we were so not invested in our 9.30 service this morning, I'm just going to tell you, we, we were barely here. Is that correct? Did we have that service? I don't even know what I talked about. It was, it was, uh, it was really just a waste of time. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We, uh, we do this. How many of you prefer this time change? <laughs> oh, three of you. That's, that's, that's awesome. Well, we're going to start pushing our services back to like two in the afternoon or something like that moving forward. I think that'll be good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Saturdays. Yeah, we, we'll do that too. Um, I'm going to start a series in a couple weeks. Uh, this is my last, uh, my last uh, sermon to preach in this series, and then Brad's going to kind of bring it all home next week, talking about revive when we get to that in a minute. Uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to start a series called On the Mountain with God, and this is going to be our Easter series. It's going to take us the week before, the week of, and then also uh, the week after. But, you know, I love that song, Defender, and it's, it's kind of very quickly become one of my favorite songs, even though it starts off a little graphic and, and, and a little interesting. It really is talking about the God who stands in the gap for us, the God who sees things that we don't see and really goes to bat for us. And it's just a great anthem for us to remember, especially today, as we're going to be talking about some vision stuff. But like I said, we're in this, uh, I'm preaching my last week of this We series uh, that really is about looking, you know, looking back and moving forward and this process that every one of us is involved in as we step into our future, we try to honor our past, but we also try to step into the next thing that God has for us. When I started this series about seven weeks ago, I, I kind of let the cat out of the bag early, and I, I told you that the biggest reword, that resurrection is the big word. If you're a Christian and you are a Christ follower, resurrection is the word. It's the word that dominates all the other words. It's, in fact, it's kind of the umbrella word as Christians that says, hey, if I am following God, if I am living my life behind his standard, then resurrection is a word that needs to dominate my life. The problem with the word resurrection is this, is that it really only applies to Jesus. Now, that's not a bad thing. The, the reality is it's become a church word, hasn't it? It's a word that we only use when we talk about faith, and yet that is not the way that God wanted us to experience resurrection. He didn't want it to just be that on Sundays we're like, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Or on Easter, oh, today's the day we celebrate that. It was meant to be a word that dominated our lives. And there are other words that are kind of synonymous, maybe not as powerful, but that they have similar meaning that we're going to talk about a little bit today. Talk about the word redeemer. Talk about this idea of what does it mean to rejoice or find joy? And how do we live into a vision, a new vision, a revision, if you will, as we step forward? But we have to ask this question, what is a redeemer? You've heard this word in church, right? Jesus is your redeemer. And, and we use language and we kind of say, well, what does that mean? It's another one of those words like resurrection that we don't use a whole lot in daily life. We, we sort of talk about it on churchy days, but we don't really use that word anywhere else. But today we're going to explore what that word means and how it affects us and how it changes us. You see, redemption is a transactional word. You ever heard this in church? Jesus paid the price for your sin. Yeah, we've heard that word. We use that word. Even though paid is not the best word, it's the word that we understand uh, most succinctly about what has happened, that, that somehow between Jesus and God and the enemy, there has been some transaction and some payment that has bought freedom for God's 
people. We call that process redemption or that Jesus became the Redeemer. The best example of redemption or what it means to be a redeemer is found in a story in the Old Testament. It's a story that, that's found in a book that carries the name of a woman. And only few books in the, in the Old Testament or even in the Bible for that matter carry the names of women. It's the book of Ruth. There's another book, the book of Esther. We're not talking about that one today. But the book of Ruth. Now let me give you the background story to the story of Ruth. And maybe you know this, maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. Uh, Naomi is a woman who is a Jew, and she marries a guy named Elimelech. And they decide to be missionaries in in another country, and that country is called Moab. And over time, they have a couple of babies. They have a couple of sons, and their names are Malon and Kilion. And they live there, and as the boys grow up and do all the things that kids do, they find wives. They find these Moabite wives. One of them is named Orpah. The other one is named Ruth. And, and life is going well, right? Family is breaking forth and emerging. I mean, I'm sure there'll be grandkids at some point in this story. But then something horrible happens. Elimelech has a heart attack and he dies. And it's a great loss for this family. The two sons now have to take up the reins and be the men of the family. But, but sadly, they take a trip to another country. And while they're there, they both get COVID. And they both die. And a family is just ravaged. And not only the loss of all the males in the family. Not, not only is that a huge loss. And, and we in this room, we know these losses. But their family just changes immediately. And the rules for women in that culture are not the same as they are for us today. Women are not allowed to own businesses or own property. In fact, when your your spouse died, it would go to the next male heir. And you were a placeholder. You kind of just, just stood in the gap and were the one who owned the land for a short amount of time until we could marry you off and finally get a male heir. But there's no grandkids here. And so not only have they gone through this huge loss of the loved ones in their lives, but now their entire family is going to be uprooted and they have no option but to go back to the country of Naomi's origin, to go back to Israel. And Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, she, she gets sent back to her family so that hopefully she can find a man and hopefully she can try to have a family and salvage what is left of her life. But Ruth says, I'm going to go with you, Naomi. And they go together to this place, and they really have nothing. I mean, they, they have a title deed that says, we own this land, but they only own it until they can find a man eligible enough to take them on as a new family. It's not a great story. We use the word guardian redeemer for those people. What that means is the next of kin that is eligible to marry that person. And it doesn't even have to be their first wife. So you... You will marry this person to get the land, and then what kind of future are you going to have? We don't actually know. So Ruth and Naomi have lost everything. They've lost love. They've lost identity. They've really lost their value. They've been told by their culture, you're not really good enough until you find someone else. Now, our rules are different in our world today, but it it wasn't a great thing for them. They had to find a redeemer, and that wasn't a positive experience. 
experience nine times out of ten. But Ruth happens to meet this nice guy named Boaz, and Boaz is actually second in line to be her guardian redeemer. And he really likes Ruth, but he's got to play a little bit of a game to try to make things play in his favor. And so I'm going to read a little bit of the story, and you'll understand hopefully what it means after this. But in Ruth chapter 4, it says this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Now, how convenient. Boaz said, hey, come over here, my friend, and sit down. If anybody ever says to you, hey, my friend, you need to realize that something bad's about to happen. Okay? Ever find that? Like your spouse comes, hey, sweetie, oh, something bad's about to happen. Come over here, my friend, sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took the ten elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi came back from Moab and is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of all those seated here and in the presence of the elders and the people. And if, if you will redeem it, will pay for it, then do so. But if not, then maybe you just tell me and I will. For no one has the right to do it except you. And then FYI, I'm, I'm next in line behind you. The guy says, well, I'll, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz says, by the way, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth. Isn't that romantic? You'll acquire this woman. The dead man's widow. You know, she already killed one. Let's just see how the next one goes. In order to maintain the name of the dead with this property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, well, I can't redeem it because I'll endanger my own estate. You go ahead and redeem it. I, I don't want to. What he really is saying is, I would love to have the land, but I don't want this foreign woman. Because if she comes into our family and into our life, it might cause great problems. We don't quite, quite know what's happened in her story. It says, now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandals and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Kind of a cool practice that they do. They basically share and say, you're going to walk the road, and I'm not going to walk it, and you have to choose between us. So the guardian redeemer said to, to Boaz, you buy it yourself. And he removed his sandals. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are my witnesses that I have bought the land from Naomi, all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, and I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my and we know from the story that Boaz is a good husband to Ruth. He loves her. He, he, is, he sees her for who she is. The other kinsman redeemer probably wasn't a bad guy, but saw Ruth only as a way to own more property. See, what we learn in this story is that redemption is about assigning value. Now, what Boaz does is really ingenious because he tries to twist the story enough so that the guy doesn't see the value and kind of misses Ruth in the midst of it. But he wants, he wants us to see that he sees value in Ruth. And of course, if you read the rest of the story, you know that Ruth 
becomes the great-grandmother of King David, and we know that Jesus comes from the descendants of David. And Ruth's life is changed because of this story. Because she is valued, and then she finds value. Valued people tend to find value in others. I heard this uh, story this week, which I thought was a really powerful story. It was kind of trending uh, on some things, and I wanted to share it with you today because I think it matters, and it talks about this idea of how we see value. There was a young man who um, went to one of his high school reunions. Let's just call him John. John went to one of his, his, not high school, just one of his school reunions, which I'm sure some of you have done over the years. And he got there, and they got the name tags, and he walked around, and they remembered, oh, we were friends, and this person and that person, and then there were the pictures of the ones that they'd lost along the way. And across the room, John saw one of his teachers, probably, you know, fourth or fifth or sixth grade teacher, in the days where teachers stayed at one school longer than about ten minutes, right? Uh, that they stayed there for their entire career. They were there. And he went over to the teacher, and he said, hey, I, you know, it's good to see you. He reintroduced himself. Oh, I remember you. That's great. And they got to talking. The teacher said to, to John, he said, well, what did you do with your life? He said, I became a teacher. I became an educator. He said, that's great. Why did you do that? He said, well, there was a teacher who had a great impact on my life, and that teacher was you. He said, really? He said, I mean, I was an okay teacher. I mean, I wasn't the best. I wasn't the worst. I was, I was good. I, I really cared about what I did. But how did I impact your life? John says, I remember we were probably in fifth grade, and one of the boys in the class got a wristwatch for a gift from his family, from, for a birthday or Christmas or something. He said, I really liked that watch. It was a cool watch. And I really wanted that watch, but I knew I probably would never get, you know, that, something like that for, for myself. So I made a decision that I was going to take the watch. And he said, and when, when we were changing for P.E., took the watch out of his pocket, and I put it in mine, and then after PE, we all know what happened, he discovered he didn't have a watch, went to the teacher, said, hey, somebody's taken my watch, well, did anybody see the watch, did you drop the watch, does anybody know anything about the watch, and nobody said anything, and so then the teacher, he said, you walked into the classroom, and you locked the door, and you said, this is the last chance you guys have to tell me where, what happened to the watch, and he said, I didn't do anything, I didn't say anything, I knew it was in my pocket, but I didn't say anything said, and then you had us line up against the wall, and you said, I'm going to check all of your pockets and see if we can find it. And he said, I was terrified. I didn't know what to do, but I still didn't speak out. And he said, and then you made us all close our eyes. And he said, and then one by one, you went down the line checking all of our pockets. And obviously, when you got to me, you reached in my pocket, you felt the watch, you took it out, put it in your pocket, then you finished searching all the other kids. He said, and then afterwards, you gave the watch back to its owner. And he said, but you never told him that I was the one who took it. In fact, you never even pulled me aside and said, what you did was wrong, and you shouldn't have done that, and don't do that again. But he said, in that moment, I got it. And it absolutely impacted and changed my life. And that's why I became a teacher, because I wanted to be like you said, I don't remember that. John said, what do, what, do you, what do you mean you don't remember that? I 
that's the most pivotal, pivotally formative thing of my life. How do you not remember that? Lisa looked at him and said, because I chose not to. I love that description. If you are a teacher or a leader or even a pastor, that's how you make an impact on the world. You know, we look at our world with judgment. We look at our world with with callous. And yet here was a guy who said, I don't want to villainize anybody. I just want I just want people to have value. I don't want to devalue people. How quick do we devalue people in our culture, in our society? What we learn even in this story and with the story of Ruth is that redemption brings rejoicing or brings joy in our lives and we start to revision our lives. I don't think Ruth ever imagined that her life would be better in the second half after tragedy than it was before. Because that was the place that she went to with God. And God gave her joy back and gave her an idea of who she could be. Not to be defined by her wounds, but to be defined by who he is and the fact that she had value to him. And so, in turn, she would have value. You know, one of the questions that we've been asking as a church for maybe a while, maybe I've been asking, maybe we've all kind of quietly been asking, is who can we become as Journey Church? We want to always make sure that we are stepping behind God, that we are doing what God wants us to do, that we're sharing in the things that God wants us to share in, that we're becoming what God wants us to become. And so today, I want to kind of let you peek behind the curtain a little bit as, as the, the conversations that our staff and our leadership are having. And we're going to talk about kind of a revision for 2021. Not because our vision is bad, not because we're not doing the right things, but because God has more of his story that he wants to tell through us. We've been talking about how do we frame this initiative. And this last week, we kind of came up with some branding of what we're going to do. And we've, we're going to call it Shift 21. Now, if, if you understand, this is different than saying change. It's different than saying you know, expansion, it's different than saying build. It's talking about this idea that our church is making a move, that we have been in one place for a while, and we just need to continue to hone that as we step into it. Now, I'm going to share a few little images for you because we've, we've met with some architects in the last, you know, few, few days. We, we have another meeting this coming week because we've realized that some of our facilities need to change. I don't know if you know this, but we're kind of running out of room. Maybe not in here, but in parts of our building, we are. That our church really needs to get a new face. That our church really needs to, needs to become what it's supposed to become. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you look out that way from our building, things are happening. People are coming. And while these are just images, these are not actual pictures, so don't get too excited. Um, they give us an idea of what is going to take place here. You know, we, we've also realized that we need a multi-purpose space. A lot of people start with worship centers, and we don't really need a worship center right now. We can handle that part. The place that we're struggling is with our, our students and with our, our kids. That's the area that we need the most space. In fact, this worship center will serve us just fine. The only reason why we'll have to build another one is because we're getting kicked out of this one because our students or our kids need it. What would it look like if on a Sunday morning, instead of adults in here, this room was filled with kids or filled with students? That's 
house. That's meaningful. That's where God is calling us. In fact, the entire building that you see here that you get to walk around probably over time will become our student and children's wing exclusively. Now, yes, we'll, we'll build a worship center. It's not going to be a 5,000-seat anything because we don't believe in that kind of stuff. We're not trying to build some monument to ourselves. We're trying to step in line with God and say, where are you calling us? Where do you want to grow us? How can we follow you better? But it's exciting when we talk about big things. And there's always a few people that are going to say, well, how much is that going to cost? It's an easy answer, a lot. And guess what? We're going to ask you to give money. Do you know this? Do you know that if every family in this church, in fact, any family in every family in, in any church, if they faithfully tithed, we would never have to ask for money. We would never have capital campaigns. We would never say, hey, we need this. If people prioritized their lives behind God first, which we all struggle with, we would never have to ask the church for anything. But that's not where we live, is it? That's why it's a vision. We've got to give people something bigger than what they, than what they see. And we're going to talk about giving after we get through Easter and a couple other things. We're going to put this all together in a booklet for you. And you're going to have every, all the information that we can possibly give you about how this is going to happen. We're going to try to be very honest about it. And we don't just want to be those people that, you know, that we build something because people gave. But now we can't keep it going because people do not continue to give. And it's not just about the giving. I'll tell you what we want at this church, what I want at this church, what I want you to be at this church. Is I want us to be all in. I want us to be investors. I don't want us to be Christian tourists who just come for a little little while. I want us to put our heart and soul into something that, that matters. I want us to make that shift in our own lives. I want us to, to allow whatever God is going to do to become real for us. You know, as we go through this, I'm going to share some words with you. The first six or seven years that I've been at this church, have been the plant years. But now we're transitioning into the grow years, and one day we will, we will transition into the harvest years, what God is going to do for us. And we've tried hard for the last six years to get this building where it needs to be, to get ourselves in line. And it's not, the building's not the big thing for our church. It's the mindset of our people that are going to be involved in this. We're going to change the way we do some mission stuff, and there's some cool things happening there. We've changed the way that we've done leadership and staff and how we as a staff and leadership are investing in our church and how we're engaged with it. We know that you are coming. Maybe you came because you wanted something for your kids or you went to Camp Craze or, or you wanted to be a part of an adventure week, but you stayed because you saw something else. Because you started asking the question, am I just going to plant my faith all my life or am I going to transition into that grow phase? Am I going to take some steps in faith and step out and for this to be real. I don't just want to attend from time to time or throw five bucks in here and there. I want to be a part of something. I want this to have a greater definition in my life. That's why we ask the question, who can we become, Journey Church? Not a building question. Not about how big can we make this. But what is God going to do if we are faithful? If we step behind Him? And let me tell you, I want you to be praying first and foremost. And if, if there's something that becomes more about us than about him, he will take it away from us quicker than anything else. 
Our God is a God on mission and on purpose. He has given us power and authority as his church to do something mighty. But it's got to be his. Otherwise, it's just a monument. Whenever I talk to people, and maybe this is part of my own story, we've got to ask this question. What is bigger than us? You ever meet people that they're the biggest thing in their story? Their life, their success, their looks, their money. How sad is it when we're the biggest thing in our Our stories have got to be about something that matters. About something that is bigger than any one of us. I want to be clear. This is not about me wanting something else. This is about me knowing that there are people coming. People that need to hear the name of Jesus. People that need to walk with him. People that do not have an opportunity of faith people that have been wounded by curses, people that need to walk through a door and say, those people love Jesus and those people love me and it's bigger than just them. That's what God is calling us. The only problem that we have is we're not always ready for it. And my question today is, are we ready? Yes, I know it's a reword. I couldn't resist. It's just the last of the rewords, okay? But are we ready for that? Do we want that? Do we want to be a part of something that matters? Do we want to be a part of something that's not about us? Do we want to step forward? Would we put our money where our mouth is? Are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to give up so that our kids will have a future and our students will have a future? Let me tell you, I would want nothing more than for there to be two times as many under 18s at this church than there are adults. Because there are so many children who are living without parents or without hope or without Christ. And they need a place to go. They need a place to be a part of something. This is not about any one of us. This is about all of us. And this is primarily about Him. And if we follow behind Him, you know, God, God doesn't worry about resources like we do. Because let me tell you about redemption. God didn't pay the minimum wage. John 10 says, I have come so that you would have life. Not just life. Life in abundance. I'm willing to give anything necessary so that people can find me and know they have value. And so I'm trying to plant some seeds today. I'm trying to show you some little pictures. And maybe there's a stirring in your heart, not, not because you hear that suddenly we want money, but because God wants more of you. And God has done everything for you to be in relationship with Him. And our church should be dominated by that attitude. That it starts and ends with Him. And that anything and everything we do, we don't have to worry about because God is in control and He's got it. But we've got to be willing. We've got to be those jars of clay, those, those vessels. And so I'm going to ask you to just, we're going to share all this with you in a few months. I just want to ask you to be prayerful. 
be prayerful about God. What are you calling me to in this moment? How can I engage? How can I become what you want me to become? How can I step behind you and see amazing things happen in this place? There's people who need to know Jesus, and they will never hear it unless you do. That's bigger than any building. That's bigger than any church. Father, thank you today just for, for allowing us to share, share things. And God, I pray that whatever's been shared today is small compared to what you really want to do. That it's a, it's a drop in the bucket that we just don't even see it. The same way that the apostles didn't see it on the day of Pentecost. They thought they were going to have a church of 20 or 30 people, maybe. But God, you opened floodgates and you poured people and drew people to yourself. God, I pray that we would be a church that follows you first and foremost. God, I pray that there would be people that walk through these doors every week that say, I don't quite know why I'm here. I just felt like I needed to, to check it out. I needed to, I felt like I just needed to come and attend one of your services. And God, May they meet you in this place. May they be so overwhelmingly loved. May we pour so much value into them and their families that they would say, this is what we've been looking for. We have wanted a place that represents God, that represents value, where we feel like we are bought back. God, I just thank you so much for this church. Thank you for our leaders. Thank you for our staff. Thank you for our members, thank you for those that are, that are all in already. Thank you for those that are going to be all in. Thank you for those that are going to make commitments about faith in their life that they never knew they were going to make. Father, thank you that you meet us in all those places and that you remind us just how valuable we are to you. That we're not pieces of property. That we're not just convenient. But God, that you you have given us life and value. And you have paid the ultimate price for us. As we look to the future, God, fill our eyes with beautiful things. May we always keep our eyes on Christ, the resurrected King. And it is in his beautiful and powerful name that we pray. Church together. Today.